I'm Peter Rudlin. You are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. You may have noticed a bonus episode of our show pop into your feed on Wednesday night. That was a special live town hall-esque episode that we did about school reopenings and how remote learning is going so far. We had a whole panel of a couple teachers and parents over on Facebook Live and on our website. I would highly encourage you to check it out. I think it's a really important conversation if you care at all about education, and uh, which I imagine you do since you're listening to this podcast right now. But anyway, this episode, we wanted to focus a little bit on the election since somehow we're just a few days out by the time that you're hearing this. So I talked to Dr. Christina Rivers. She's Associate Professor of Political Science at DePaul University. She studies voting rights, African-American politics, and she's taught several inside-out classes at the Stateville Correctional Center with students on the inside and DePaul students. Christina and I talked about how unprepared political science was for this moment in our political history. We talked about the re-entering Citizens Civics Education Act that she helped out with. We talked about prison gerrymandering and voter suppression. Obviously, we've made a lot of progress and sustained progress in terms of voting rights and voter access. But what is really disappointing and, and heartbreaking and infuriating all at the same time is seeing the resurgence of so many of these devices that were very much in use during the Jim Crow era, and not just in the Jim Crow South, but around other parts of the country. Dr. Rivers and I talked about so much more that I think is really pertinent to the moment that we're in right now. Before we get to that conversation, I have just a few quick voting stories to touch on. One of them you heard last episode, but I wanted to make sure and play it just one more time. Americans all over the country have cast their ballot already. And I talked to a voting rights group who works with a lot of students to give young voters a few tips as they head to the polls or vote by mail. Alex Boutros is the community organizing manager at Chicago Votes, and they're reminding voters that even if you requested a vote by mail ballot, you can still change your mind and vote in person. You're supposed to bring in the vote-by-mail ballot to give to the election judge for them to give you the card to vote early. That's called surrendering your mail-in ballot, so you can't vote twice. And if you do vote by mail, make sure to sign the back of the envelope so it doesn't get returned. The nonprofit has also been sharing information about the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which runs an election protection hotline. If people feel intimidated at the polls or think their rights are being violated, they can call 1-866-OUR-VOTE to reach pro bono attorneys or election experts who can talk them through their situation. And also, most people in county jails haven't yet been convicted of a crime. And those people incarcerated while awaiting trial are still eligible to vote. 2020 is the first year where county jails in Illinois are mandated to have a vote-by-mail system in place for those people. Joyce Klein is the chief of corrections in DeKalb County. She says they've been doing it for around 20 years, but now they're providing each person with a voter registration form and an application to receive a ballot if they're already registered. Even before we gave that out to everyone, we were seeing uh, higher interest in voting this time around. They've also put up posters in the jail to make sure people know their rights. Jason Edgecombe is the LaSalle County Jail Superintendent. Some counties already had processes in place, but this is LaSalle County's first time offering vote by mail. So it doesn't matter necessarily what your charge is, but if you're sentenced to DOC or the county jail, then you're not eligible to place your vote. was pretty much my best understanding, which was an eye-opener for me, because that actually is quite a few people then that we house here that become eligible. Edgecombe says they've also tried to help people get applications who are registered in different counties or even different states. Alex Boutros with Chicago Votes says that many people in jail aren't even aware that they're eligible to vote. Before the law went into effect, they said they reached out to county jails and less than 10 responded that they had vote-by-mail systems in place. All right, now it's time for my conversation 
Associate Professor of Political Science, Dr. Christina Rivers. This will be the last episode before the election happens, which as we're speaking right now is... Is happening. Is, is <laughs> happening now and election day is yeah. eight days away. Yeah. And it'll only be, this episode will go up on Friday. So this will be only you know, four, four days or something like that before the election. I'm curious for you as a political scientist, as someone that studies voting rights and mm -hmm. all these things, what has been on your mind over the last couple of weeks leading up to this election? I would say what's been on my mind for the last few months leading up to this election, what's been on my mind for a few years leading up to this election is how unprepared most of us with PhDs in this discipline were for this moment. There's just been no training for the unpredictability of of the current person we have in the White House in combination with a pandemic. It's, it's, it's really been an interesting moment of political history almost being reinvented, I guess is the best way I can put it. There are just so many times I find myself saying, whether it's to myself or you know, to my students, if they ask a question, you know, I just don't know what's going on. They just didn't prepare us for this. And, and I remember us joking about this in 2000 after the, the 2000 elections. And, you know, that was the first time an election had been decided by the Electoral College since, I don't know, the 1800s. And, you know, they didn't even really cover the Electoral College in my PhD program or my undergrad. They just glossed over it, right? It was, it was obsolete. And as far as we were concerned, we all thought, well, okay, all right, I guess it was bound to happen. It's been a a century. This won't happen again. And so we then, most of us didn't go back and study the electoral college any further because we thought that was it. And then 2016 happens and it looks like it may possibly happen again. I have not efficiently found a way to describe this moment of uncertainty. Well, just related to the electoral uncertainty over voter suppression, voter access, mail-in voting, a sitting president who's actively seeks to be undermining that process with an absence on the Supreme Court. Did I mention pandemic again? Pandemic. It, it's beyond a perfect storm, all these factors. Absolutely unprecedented, unprepared for, I don't know if it's even preparable, if that's a word, um, moment of uncertainty for political scientists. And, you know, it's ironic that it's outrageous job security for all of us. <laughs> yeah. um, but we really are, many of us, learning as we go. And, and I often half joke, you know, again, to my students that if you have professors that are sounding like they're really secure and they know what's going on, they know what they're talking about, they're lying. Um, none of us do. Yeah, it's been interesting even for me as a journalist. I keep feeling like half of the questions I need to ask people are crystal ball questions that they probably don't have an answer for. But I was thinking for you, does it feel odd as a political scientist to feel like these issues that you study, like voting rights or African-American politics, that all of those seem to be coming into the public consciousness and conversation we're having as a country even more this year. Yeah, I mean, on the flip side of all this, I, I've never heard of this, this is unprecedented, and all of this is unprecedented. On the flip side of that, I have been in more than one event. In fact, I was in one last week where I think all three of us on the panel basically said in so many words, I said it literally in these words, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's profoundly disappointing. And so I don't want it to sound like we've made no progress in this country with respect to voting rights and voter access, not at all. 
obviously we've made a lot of progress and sustained progress in terms of voting rights and voter access and expansions of the ballot and the franchise um, compared to the era of, of the founding of this country when the, the right to vote was, was far, far, far more restricted. So I'm not dismissing those expansions, but what is really disappointing and, and heartbreaking and infuriating all at the same time is seeing the resurgence of so many of these devices that were very much in use during the Jim Crow era and not just in the Jim Crow South, but around other parts of the country um, with respect to uh, making it more difficult to register to vote, minimizing places that people can go vote, increasing scrutiny over somebody's eligibility to vote and just talk at least of, of resurgence of voter intimidation at the polls. Again, none of this is new, but most of us would like to have thought it was fairly far into the past, you know, with the exception of little pockets of resistance or animosity here and there. But to, to read and to hear and to see images of, of really long lines, intimidation tactics and, and just outright deceptive tactics, such as, you know, putting up unofficial boxes to collect ballots in California, stealing of boxes. I read recently about somebody who tried to set a, a, a ballot box on fire. It's really disappointing. It's really frightening. And, and what's so much worse about it now is it's sure, I think some of the same old audiences are the target, right? Historically suppressed minorities, Black and Latino voters for the most part, and Native American. But we're seeing this stuff happening in places where it didn't typically happen. It's just like, wow, the amount of, of racial animosity that is underneath the surface and, and on the surface of our democracy is, is just stunning. Um, the way it has come to the surface um, and, and in correlation with these repeated spates of police shootings of unarmed, unprovoking black men and women is really kind of mind numbing because that's never happened. That, 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 those correlations have never happened the way they're happening now. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too because I was, I was reading and or listening to something, I believe it was a, a podcast or something that you were on and you talked about you know, talking about race and voting rights and the correlation of these things in this whole conversation we're having, you mentioned that it was kind of like trying to have those conversations could be like trying to pick up a bead of mercury from a thermometer. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel, it really is. can you expand a little bit on more on what you mean by that? Certainly more younger people are, are open to having those conversations and, and to I think they're going to be the ones to, to sweep up the mercury. On the other hand, there's a, pot, a significant number of people in this country that just flatly refuse to have that conversation. And, and these are people that matter. And, you know, five going on, six of them are on the Supreme Court. That's what really troubles me. I was listening to a podcast the other day or a panel on a speaker we had actually at DePaul who was um, looking at the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa after the fall of apartheid. And you know, making some arguments about how we we need to do that here. America's never had its own truth and reconciliation uh, process around enslavement or around our dynamics with Native Americans or around any of these other really horrendous moments in our history. You know, that involved in some cases genocide. Right? We just haven't done that. And until we have those conversations, it's it's just going to keep coming up. So I'm, I'm hopeful, again, when I listen to my students and, you know, people under, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself, people who aren't in the establishment, right? They're not, they're under 30. They're not members of the establishment. What scares me the most is 
really kind of seeing the surfaces of this, this silent majority who has always resisted this, who is for the first time in decades, not so silent, you know, both in a, in a, a verbal sense and, and also in a physical sense. I like to think that those folks are in the minority, but you know, they're becoming a very vocal group and, and a very visible group. I don't know, you know, often I've wondered, is this one of those last gasps of, of an illness before it finally leaves? I, I had a colleague who had this great analogy. She says, this is almost like food poisoning. You just kind of have to keep vomiting it out, right? To get it all out. You think you're done and you're not done. It certainly feels like vomiting right now. <laughs> yes, it does. Are we just going to be living with kind of chronic food poisoning? And, and, and unless we talk it through, these issues through, are we going to go through these vomiting stages again? Um, I hope not. You know, again, I talk to my students and, and other young people who are not my students, and, and they seem to be a lot more grown than we are. I want to I want to segue and, and talk about your students and about teaching during a pandemic and everything. But this whole conversation we're having, especially about confronting race and having conversations about diversity and equity, it makes me think of even around a month ago there was an executive order that the Trump administration had that was around <laughs> you know, uh, people that had received federal grants, and, and including universities, that had caused several universities to halt you know diversity equity uh trainings halt diversity events i believe at john logan college in illinois yeah they suspended a uh hispanic heritage month talk so it seems like even though they're even on like the federal government level there are people who do are not open to having these conversations and actively don't want to have them they're gonna have to have them it's not gonna go away um, you know, you can stick your fingers in your ears as much as you want. And at some point, you're just going to have to hear it. And that's just the way I look at it. I, a lot of this to me is just a petulant grown up temper tantrum and wishing things away. And it's just not going to happen. Mm. And, um, you know, get over it, right? I, it's, it's just such, such an, an ill guided way to handle diversity and the problems that come out of diversity. You just can't sweep this under the rug. You can't replace, you know, a 1619 project with a 1787 project because if you study 1787, you're going to study the same pain. You're just starting a few years later, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't want to study any of this stuff, then let's not talk about the Constitution and how the Constitution completely enshrined racial inequality, right? So if you don't want to talk about this, then let's not do American history. Let's just do away with all that. And, you know, or go back to teaching it in a very minimized way that that excised all that reality out, which, oh, by the way, is catching up with us, right? It's going to catch up with us. You just can't wish it and legislate that stuff away. So let's just talk about it and get ourselves through it. I, I think it's just absolutely ridiculous. And I'm not even sure how constitutional it is to do that um, in terms of, of to the extent to which it, it's starting to step onto free speech. And this specific measure that we're talking about, too, is something that, you know, feels like political posturing more than anything, right? I think it, yeah, it, it could be. You know, it, it's it's a tough one. Yes, the federal government can can do away with all this, but that doesn't mean that other entities, private entities, can't continue to have these conversations. It's this odd reversal, right? Because 40 years ago or 50 years ago, you had the federal government passing laws to require that we basically invest in this kind of discussion and, and look into these kind of policies, and you had private entities that were resisting it, and now it's kind of the reverse. Mm. Um, and it's an outlier because you've had other administrations who have been hostile to these to this approach, but they've never gone so far as, as to say, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. Um, 
So I'm hoping it's temporary, but even if you, you know, you can pass as many laws as you want, the problems are not going away. There's not. And you can be the Supreme Court justice of this country and close out a, a, a Supreme Court opinion by saying the only way to stop looking at race or to stop discriminating by race is to stop discriminating by race. It's still going to happen. When he wrote that sentence in 2007, people didn't stop discriminating by race. Hmm. So, you know, but, but that's where our Supreme Court leadership is. And, and it's, I don't think the hostility is there that the, the current administration has, but the willful blindness to it is um, every bit as problematic and it doesn't solve any problems. Yeah, like I said, let's pivot to teaching right now. Are you, are all your classes remote at this point? Yeah, so DePaul is, I would say about 90% of our courses are remote. Certainly both of my classes this quarter are remote. I've um, already signed up to teach remotely for the winter quarter and we will very likely continue to teach remote through the through spring quarter because we're on a quarter system. Yeah, and I know that you were not you were not teaching classes in the spring, correct? I wasn't teaching in the spring. So what has so it I, been like? What has it been like this? this uh, fall? Well, you know, that was the good news and the bad news. So the good news last spring was, oh, I'm not teaching. I don't have to go through this instant transition. And but you know, like I just said, I knew it was going to catch up with me, right? So I'm going through it now. Mm -hmm. I I got the benefit of some really good training because I'm not an online person. Um, I am blessed with really wonderful patient students who put up with my clumsiness pretty much every single class meeting. On some level, teaching online, you can kind of chew on an issue or chew on a discussion in a better way, for lack of a better term. In my class, our classes are small, by the way, DePaul classes are quite small. So both of my classes have about 25 people. So they fit. If I'm teaching from my desktop, which I usually do, I can see all of them, or at least they're, they're, they're square, they're little black squares. So it is weird to teach to a class where you're not literally not seeing half of your students sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, I would say every bit as engaged online as, as they are in person. Some, there's some features of teaching online that are kind of cool that promote discussion in a different way. I think that makes it easier for those quiet students who would probably normally not say anything, mm. say anything. Sometimes they'll throw something into the chat. So give the ability for them to do that in kind of a subtle way. And, you know, I'll try to see their point and pull that in is, is nice. Yeah. And there are going to be people that you have in these classes that you never meet in person, which is not a thing to, to think about. I'm sure. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, that it's good. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. I'll probably never see them in person, especially if these are seniors who I had never had before. And I have quite a few seniors in one of these classes. So now one thing I do like about it is it makes it really easy for speakers to get speakers in because you're no longer, you know, they're not physically having to come there. Normally, you know, when you get a speaker coming in, they're dressed for the occasion. And sometimes even the speakers are there looking like I am now, you know, with their college t-shirt on and pulling their hair together. Um, and yet we get these great presentations and you know, I had another speaker whose cat just kind of walked in front of her. Um, so it's it's this really funny dynamic. And I love the, the, the four-legged Zoom bombers. You know, they're, they're the best. Oh, I love that. Um, They've even had people making cereal in the back of a Zoom call. I haven't quite had, I, I, I haven't quite had that. Um, I did have, uh, there was one moment where this strange chat showed up and, and I was like, 
okay, what was that? And then students like, sorry, that was my cat. You know, Cause we didn't see the cat. Yeah. The cat had walked across her keyboard. So I was like, okay, well, that was a good comment. Whatever Kitty was trying to say. You know. <laughs> and what are the classes that you're teaching right now? So one of them is the, of a senior level class on voting, voting rights. You know, I usually teach it during election year. Um, and then the other one is a class on law, politics, and mass incarceration, which I normally would have taught um, at Stateville Correctional Center as part of DePaul's Inside Out Prison Exchange Program. I usually teach there every other spring. This was supposed to be my spring. That obviously didn't happen. And so um, this is that class would have been taught with 12 DePaul students and 12 incarcerated students at the prison. Right now, it's I just opened it up to regular enrollment. Um, and so it's 24 people, but they're all traditional DePaul students. Um, Depart Illinois Department of Corrections is not up to capacity at all. They're having to start from scratch of even instituting any kind of remote teaching. So, so far that's not happening. Um, I, I did get the materials that our inside students would have had, some of the, the reading materials that they would have had. I, we, we did get those to them. I dropped those off very late a few weeks ago. So it's not like they're able to actually take the class, but at least they have the materials and I have invited them if they want to give me their feedback as if they were in the class, that's fine. And I have permission to share their feedback with the current students. And, and if they want to sort of correspond that way, they can. Yeah. Um, so far, I haven't, I don't think I received any, appoint, any responses back from the guys on the inside, but I also know it took a minute for them to, to get all their materials delivered and they can't even see the other side because the capacity is not there. Mm. Um, the whole premise of that program is to be sort of in-person, face-to-face, breaking down of barriers and how do you work, make this work now through physical and electronic barriers, right? And a, and a lot of prison education now is going the old route of correspondence where instructors will physically drop off readings and pick up homeworks and just do that over the course of a semester. It's tougher on a quarter system because we only have 10 weeks. And so if something is delayed by a week or so, that's that throws everything off. Yeah. So I deeply regret not being able to teach that class. I deeply regret not being able to come up with some other kind of a workable correspondence type framework between the, the incarcerated students and the, the traditional students at DePaul. Um, I, I will be allowed if students on either side are interested to continue correspondence over the work even after the class is over. They did authorize that um, you know, with my supervision, which I'm fine with doing. Um, I just need to see if I'm going to get any work from some of the inside folks first and, and, and everything in, in the Department of Corrections anywhere, not just here. On a good day, moves at a snail pace, but, you know, even more so now. Yeah, I remember, this is a good segue, I remember the last conversation that we had had in the spring, we were talking about your Inside Out program, and we were talking about the, um, the Reentering Civics Education Act, and I remember at that time, around then, like maybe a week or two before things started shutting down in the state because of the pandemic, talking to some people from the Department of Corrections and them being like, well, I think this civics program could get delayed because of the pandemic too. What is the word on that now? Has there been any dropping off of materials for, for that program? Can you talk a little bit about what, about what that looks like during the pandemic? So from what we're told, um, 
the, that law, the Reentering Citizens um, Civic Education Act was signed into law in August, I think of 2019, and it went into effect in this past January. And so um, the way that law was supposed to work is that um, incarcerated peer educators, the Department of Corrections has this, a whole program of peer educators, and they are often the ones that facilitate a lot of their workshops, including their exit workshops. So the law was written in a way that would have the incarcerated peer educators deliver these workshops. And so what we did in the fall was we wrote up a, a curriculum, a physical curriculum, like a packet that they would hand out um, to folks who were slated to leave. And, and the work, it was supposed to be three workshops. We structured it and sort of around political processes and then actually got kind of casting your ballot and then another section on um, what are the reasons? Why why should we be civically engaged? And there were people and, on the inside they got to help craft the legislation yeah, that went into that. We, yeah, so I have this think tank that I that I um, coordinate at Stateville, and so that this the legislation was written in the think tank. Um, and yes, then we would bring the um, curriculum in in various drafts and have them look it over and, and revise it. And you know they were great editors, and then we took it out. So yes, it was written in collaboration with them. Um, not as much as I would have liked because we had to do it really quickly. But yeah, we brought in several drafts of, of the curriculum for these people in a think tank to, to look over it, you know, the incarcerated com um, committee members um, in the think tank. So uh, the goal, the way that, the, again, the way the legislation is written, incarcerated peer educators would um, conduct these seminars and, and we set this curriculum up where you can start with any module. It didn't have to be consecutive. And those who were leaving would get this curriculum hard copy in their hands. But there's also a part of the legislation that calls for the curriculum to be um, broadcasted. Right now it's just on paper. So I guess it would be a matter of them just sort of like broadcasting almost like slides, PowerPoint slides, because the internal the Department of Corrections, each institution has a, an internal TV channel, if you will, that they use for PSA type announcements, public service announcements. So it was also designed to be uploaded onto that so that anybody who's watching this could get this information, whether they're slated to leave this year, next year or not. Um, so, but our immediate concern was getting the peer educators trained because the way it works is that once they're trained, then they train the other peer educators. So it's really just, myself, members of Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and members of Chicago Votes who would have been doing these initial trainings and who were gathered, trying to you know, gather these other personnel to, to help out with this training. So um, the January training, we had to do it quickly because of course there were people who were slated to be released in January. And then fast forward, COVID hit. So what we've been told since then, and we've been having ongoing meetings with people in the Department of Corrections. Department of Corrections um, has been quite supportive of this initiative. There's been no resistance. Um, and so they do have PDF versions of, of the curriculum. They, they say that they are copying this thing off and they're at least getting that hard copy into people's hands as they leave. And that's about as good as it's been for now. That's about as good as it's been for now. I remember yeah. that that got passed or, or went into effect this year. And that was around the January. Time in January that you had the other piece of legislation that you had a hand in helping with, which was getting the voting at, at Cook County Jail. I know that you had mentioned a few weeks ago that you had a chance during early voting to go down to Cook County Jail, right? Uh, you mm -hmm. talked a little bit about both that and also 
what it looks like during a pandemic right now. I do poll watching with the Chicago Lawyers Committee. So I was um, assigned to do poll watching at, at Cook County Jail for the first of the two early voting weekends during the primary. So this would have been the first week of March. Mm. And um, I was um, assigned to the maximum security division. And for the most part, things went well. A good amount of people were able to vote. There was some um, issue, technological issues um, with some of the equipment because both the city and the county board of elections were coming in with some fairly new, pretty sophisticated equipment. Mm -hmm. There were some other hiccups with respect to some people in the jail who had not registered earlier who were trying to do what they call same day registration and voting. It wasn't working the day that I was there. I think they came back and resolved it the next day. So we saw probably a few more hiccups than usual that day because of all this new technology, but they were, they, they brought a steady stream of voters coming into this particular division. Um, and this was the highest security division. Um, and a good number of people, I forget the count now, but I, I want to say about 70 managed in that particular division, um, managed to cast their ballot. It was great. Um, and then I was scheduled to go in the following weekend and then they canceled that one entirely because it was supposed to be the, would have been the weekend that the governor announced that shutdown, like March 13th or 14th. Yeah. So they didn't get their second weekend of early voting in the primary then. I think the same thing happened this weekend. I was scheduled to go in this past weekend and um, that got called off at the last minute, but they did do early voting the preceding weekend and got a good number of ballots cast. And you know we're, we're happy that folks got to go back in there, but COVID has really impeded a lot. And I'm not sure that they were able to set up voting in as many of the units as, as they typically would have. But the, the commitment is there. We'll be there as much as we can possibly be there, you know, for the next election. Yeah. But this past weekend, I, I, I know I was told I didn't need to come in. I'm not sure if they called off the elections entirely for there, but I think they did. Yeah, and this is an issue that, you know, I think a lot of people are, are unaware of and that we touched on before that, you know, there is, this is the first year where it's mandated that county mm -hmm. jails across Illinois have a mail-in voting system in place. And mm -hmm. I was kind of hit or miss whether or not they did before this year in different counties, but just yeah, it, it, people realizing that a most people that are in county jails or at least a majority in many cases haven't been charged with anything yet. And those people have the right to vote. Yes. I think it's something I know that felony disenfranchisements and all these and, um, you know, uh, prison based gerrymandering, all these issues are things that you've focused on or things that you've done research on that. Again, I think when we had our first conversation was maybe even some things that I wasn't aware of. I mean, even mm -hmm. going to as far as, you know, complete lifelong felony disenfranchisement, there's still a state in this country where that's, that exists. Yeah, Iowa finally reversed that um, in August. In August. And yeah, so there are now no longer any states that right. permanently disenfranchise everybody who has a felony conviction. Mm. I haven't looked at her executive order, so I don't know what the stipulations are. I do know that in the last four states that had permanent disenfranchisement, which uh, I think it was Florida, Iowa, Kentucky, and Alabama, and I want to say Virginia, so it's five. Um, for all those states that have repealed their permanent disenfranchisement, there are some states that still have what they call some carve outs where if you've committed some of the higher level 
mm. um, crimes, typically murder or um, crimes of, of, of a sexual nature or sexual violence that you are still permanently disenfranchised, but that's a small percentage. I know that Florida's law where the voters um, voted by referendum, 65% of, of Florida's voters voted to repeal their permanent felony disenfranchisement law. But that, that still does have those carve-outs. So if they if people are convicted of those two classifications, they are still permanently disenfranchised. But it 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 restored eligibility in Florida to I want to say over a million people. Um, and the drawback in Florida is in you know, excuse me, in November of 2018 is when the, when the voters repealed um, that law, and in January of 2019, the state legislature proposed and passed a law that says, okay, they have to pay all of their fees and fines before they can apply to vote. And so that's been um, challenged as um, a form of a poll tax, but so far the courts have upheld that. It's gone back and forth. The most recent court has upheld the law. And so that's, we're kind of stuck there for now. I don't think they want to take it to the Supreme Court. When we had this last conversation, I think we talked a little bit about prison-based gerrymandering. And I think that was a term in March or February, whenever we talked, that I was pretty completely unaware of. And I think that there are probably listeners who might not be aware of what that is or, or what that means in this country. Yeah, so the practice of prison gerrymandering is counting incarcerated people in electoral districts, um, even though they can't vote. And so it's kind of a way of, of packing a district um, with people um, for purposes of drawing smaller legislative districts. Uh, but the, the person who represents those districts are typically not representing those who are incarcerated. So it's a skewed form of representation. Um, so uh, there's a great website called prisonersofthecensus.org if people are interested in this and they can look that up and they explain it a lot better than I just did. Um, but it's it's got shades of the three fifths clause because, you know, enslaved people were counted in the same way um, during that era for purposes of, of apportioning for uh, congressional districts, U.S. congressional districts, and for purposes of apportioning how many electors a state got. Each enslaved person was counted as three-fifths of a person, and that artificially inflated the political power of slave states. Mm. And so it's a, it's a similar effect here. Now, given how massive our, elect, our, our congressional districts are, that difference kind of washes out. You know, I think your congressional district size now is something like 720,000, it's huge. I could be wrong on that number, that number, but it's big. Where it tends to make a difference is in these smaller districts. And it could be, and I'm pulling this out of my head, but it could be like a school board district or a water reclamation district or a local city council district where you have small constituencies to begin with. And so it skews representation in a lot of ways. First off, um, if you're incarcerated, you can't vote. There, the, there's only two states in this country where you can vote while incarcerated, and that's Vermont and um, Maine. And Puerto Rico allows voting while incarcerated. But if you're um, if you're incarcerated and being counted in a district, and you're of voting age, but but you can't vote, that's an imbalance of voting power, right? Yeah. Um, and it also is an imbalance if you're in a district that's right next to a district that has a prison. And so I'm gonna do some real simple math here. 
but you know, District A has 10,000 people and 3,000 of them are incarcerated and District B has 10,000 people, none of whom are incarcerated, then District Representative A is only representing 7,000 people. Their job is a little bit easier, right? Those in District B are effectively less represented, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. There's a, there's a representational imbalance. And, and in some cases, those numbers are really egregious. So people can look up this district in Anamosa, Iowa, where because so much of the district was comprised of incarcerated people that this person running for local office won with something like two votes. One was from his wife uh, because almost nobody in that district could vote. I mean, it's almost comical but it was real. Um, and uh, there are many other problems. Um, the vast majority of, of people incarcerated in Illinois are from Chicago. The vast majority of them are black and brown. Um, many of them are in districts and prisons, I should say downstate that are largely white. Um, and so it's not clear that, that they're political interests would be shared, right? There is probably some partisan differences that tend to shake out based on um, one's racial background. And so it's really not clear that um, people who are in prison would be even passively represented as non-voters because it's not clear that their political interests would be anything close to the political interests of those people who are representing them. So there's also a question of funding, I think typically at the state level that might be attached to an incarcerated person where that funding would then go to the place where they're incarcerated and not to their home community. So there can be some allocation of funding that follows this prisoner. And again, it's benefiting a community that does not is not only not concerned about um, imprisoned people in their community, but could be just completely hostile to them. So there's a disproportionality there um, as well. And, and Representative LaShawn Ford has, has proposed um, a bill to end prison gerrymandering in Illinois several times. I think this is the third time. There's now, um, uh, I think there's another organization who's put forth a bill to end this as well. I, it's either Chicago Votes, I, I should know the name and I don't. Um, but in brief conversation with Representative Ford about this, he does say that often the sticking point is these regions want to keep the any public money that would be attached to the to the incarcerated people, they want to keep it there, right? They don't want to give up the funding, um, and and so there's that piece. The other disturb one of the many other disturbing things about um, prison gerrymanders is this is allocated by the census. All districting is redrawn during after the census, right? Um, the census counts incarcerated people at their prisons. It does not count them at their last home address, even though it could. It's not like the information isn't there. If And the census counts, the, the redistricting that comes out of the census typically lasts for about 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have states redistricting in between time, but typically it's every 10 years. Well, your average sentence length, depending on who you talk to, is between three and five years. So even after somebody gets out and leaves that jurisdiction and leaves that prison and leaves that region, they're still being counted in that region until the next census. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we might be uh, just in case I want to make sure that we don't <laughs> run out of time. So I've got one last question for you. And this one's pretty just open ended, which is I think that as like I said, this is going to drop just a few days before the election. Obviously, everyone is thinking about the presidential race, but for you, as you're looking down the ballot, 
what are the things that you want people to be looking at on the local level to make sure they're paying attention to that are going to affect them on a day-to-day basis? Uh, pay attention to those judicial retention um, selections. You know, they're not so much running against each other. Most judges are not running opposed, but they are basically running, quote unquote, for retention. Pay attention to those along with a state's attorney race. Um, you know, pay, I would say pay attention to all those down ballot issues because local laws are what often would tend to affect us the most closely. Um, so try not to skip some of those local races um, and, and try not to skip the referenda. Again, you're going to find competing information on this. It's a pain to get the information, but these are important, particularly the, the, this one on um, this proposal to shift Illinois' tax system from a flat tax which is pretty regressive to what you know people call a progressive tax that's more proportional to the levels of income that you make. Um, these are really, really important issues. And um, sometimes it's hard to make that decision, but in, in, on a day-to-day basis, I would say that these issues are, are every bit as important to us as um, who we're electing at the federal level. Perfect. Well, Christina, again, thank you so much for taking an hour and, and having a conversation about all of this stuff. And uh, good luck with, with teaching and hopefully everything's going well. Stay well, stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Dr. Christina Rivers. Send them our way. You can send it to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share it. Whatever you can do, it's the best way to get more people to listen to our show and get more perspectives like Christina. Big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the awesome music that you hear throughout every episode of this show. Shout out to Spencer Tripp for our Teacher's Lounge logo. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we will be back very, very soon. See ya.